Well, today's message is part two of our series. This is going to be a lengthy time as we go through the book of Genesis. We did an introduction of Genesis 1 through 11 last Sunday. And so the series is called Genesis, Unlocking the Bible. And today we're going to look at the creative work of God, the creative work of God. So I encourage you to take out your Bible, whether you have a, a Bible on your phone, whether you have a physical Bible, but I encourage you to grab your outline that was sent to you this week as well and uh, fill in the blanks. We don't have PowerPoint today, but I will be emphasizing the blanks. I encourage you to take notes as we study God's word together. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. You can turn in your Bible there. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And I'll read these. This is the English Standard Version. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Well, as we begin, we're going to start with a video today. And I want you to focus in on this video as it talks about creation, but also another very important event that's occurring on this Sunday, and that is Pentecost Sunday. And so watch this video, and we'll talk about it on the other side. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters at the moment of creation, like the universe exploding outward from the single spark of God's Word. So the church became real. Put your hand on the ground. The earth itself is vibrating. The mountains, the oceans, the deserts, the creatures that live here are all breathing in. The planet is inhaling. Imagine the song it will sing, the song of Pentecost. Joy enveloped the disciples. Their words were understood and welcomed. Their joy was contagious. Their message was heard and translated and shared. The church moved into the world, bringing light, bringing love, covering all there was. There was no denying it. There was no going back. The church as we know it was born. God, we feel your presence. Let us use it. Let us take this rush, this moment, this Pentecost, shouting into a world that is bored stiff by life. We have been made aware of the presence of the creator of the universe. Give us the strength to keep it going. God is real. The church is born. The song goes on and everyone can sing. Amen. So as you saw that video, it talked about God's creative hand at the beginning of time and then how he established the institution of the church 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. And so we're starting up, as I think about Pentecost, we're starting up physical church next Sunday. I'm giddy with excitement to have the idea that we're going to have people in the sanctuary. We're going to sing praises together. We're going to open God's word together. We'll be able to fellowship from a distance. And it's open to those, as I said, who wish to come. Anyone is welcome, but if you have issues, if you're feeling vulnerable, if you have any kind of illness, 
If you're older and you've got some of the uh, pre-existing conditions that would make coming uh, a problem for you, we encourage you just to stay home and watch this online. But we do ask that as you come, make sure you're aware of the guidelines that we'll get out to you this week and come and be responsible as we gather together. Well, as we begin, I want to give you some background content to Genesis chapter 1. We gave you a lot of background last week about 1 through 11, but here's specifically about these verses that we're going to look at this morning. The purpose of these chapters, and really the whole Bible, is to understand that God is showing through his creation that he wants the very, very best for humankind who lived or will live on this planet. Think about it. He created the world with perfection. He created man to live eternally. He thought Adam and Eve would live forever physically. That was his desire. He gave men and women freedom from the limitations and the consequences of sin. He desired most of all an unbroken relationship with the men and women that he created and their future ancestors. All that was what God intended and it began that way until we get to Genesis chapter 3 when free will and disobedience kick in. There's a great, great quote out of the Moody commentary about these verses. It says, God's motivation and focus throughout the creative process was ultimately on humanity and providing what is best for people. One last thing before we jump into the verses. One more thing that we need to note is that the number seven is predominant throughout chapter one of Genesis. And we know as we look throughout the Bible that the number seven for God it means completeness or perfection. It's interesting, there's seven days of creation, six days on the Sabbath. Seven paragraphs des describing the seven days of creation, the way it was written in the Hebrew. God, land, and sky is used seven times in this chapter. And God saw that it was good. He said that seven times as well. And we could go on and on, but you get the idea that God is emphasizing, even at the beginning of the Bible, his perfection and his completeness beginning with creation. Well, let's move to our outline. As I said, we don't have PowerPoint, so I encourage you to follow along and fill in the blanks as I emphasize them this morning. The first thing you see is the declaration of who the Creator is. The declaration of who the Creator is. We read Genesis 1-1 a moment ago. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created them. Notice in that statement that God, first of all, is the uncaused cause. The uncaused cause. I dare you to sit down and take some time to think logically with, our, with your finite mind, with your limited mind, and try to think back to the beginnings of the world and all the effects that occurred. And at some point, your brain will freeze up and you'll get a headache because you'll get to a place where there had to be some kind of uncaused cause. There has to be something out there that was eternal, that was able to show intelligent design when he built this world. George Bernard Shaw is perhaps one of the most renowned free thinkers and liberal philosophers. In his last writings before he died, he said this, the science to which I pin my faith is bankrupt. Its councils, which should have established the millennium, led instead directly to the suicide of Europe. I believe these 
truths from science once. In their name, I helped to destroy the faith of millions of worshipers in the temples of thousands' creeds. And now they look at me and witness the great tragedy of an atheist who has lost his faith. Nobody talks so constantly about God as those who insist that there is no God. Think about that. Think about what George Bernard Shaw looked at at the end of his life and saw. He looked back, saw the misery of atheism. God is the uncaused cause. He's the eternal one. And so he declares very clearly at the beginning who he is. He's also self-existent. No one created him. He was always there. And that's why when he talks to Moses at the burning bush, he uses the term I am in the present tense, that he always existed before, he's present now, and he always will exist. Not only is he self-existent, he's eternal, he's everlasting. He began it all and will go with us in our present time and into eternity, into the new heavens and the new earth after he recreates them. And so he's worthy of all praise, glory, and worship. He is the God of the world, not just over the local deities, as many believed at that time. Many of the different Gentile nations had these local gods, and it was very unique that there was a God who was supreme, who was sovereign over all. So not only was he the uncaused cause, but second of all, he's the master designer. The master designer. It tells us there in Genesis 1-1 that God created, he shaped, he made, he produced from nothing something. And I don't have time to explain in depth the two Hebrew words that are in this chapter, bara and asa. Bara can mean making something out of nothing, but it also can mean shaping something that has already been created. But in the Hebrew language, the meaning always has to do with context. So you have to look at the context to understand which of those two meanings bara is talking about here in Genesis 1.1. Asa, as you'll see in other places in Genesis, and it says it means to make or do with something that is already created, taking clay or, or dirt and forming something, but there's substance already there. So this is the difference, and this is the debate that goes on to its core as to whether God used evolution or some other form of scientific theory to create the world over time. But in context here means that God created something out of nothing. And that is consistent throughout the book of Genesis. And then we see that he's the self-proclaimed God of the universe. The self-proclaimed God of the universe. I think of Job and the misery that he went through and his suffering. And God finally replied to him as Job was complaining about his life. And God said this in Job 38. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God not only tells us he exists, but he proves it with his creation and he reveals himself to us through what he has created. And so the more we seek him and through the revelation he's given us, the more we find out who he is and we grow in our relationship with him. 
our application is this. It's amazing that the God who exists chose to tell us who he is. I'm just so amazed. God didn't have to reveal himself. God didn't have to create the world, but he chose to do that. And then he revealed even more of himself in an intimate way through Jesus Christ. So I'm overwhelmed by a God who did not need a relationship with anyone or anything, but chose to create human beings and a world that they could live in to have a relationship and be connected to him. Our second main point today is this, the description of those involved in his creative work. The description of those involved in his creative work. It wasn't just God the Father, as we'll see. It tells us in Genesis uh, 1-2 and John 1-3 that the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ were also involved in this process. You know, if God created the world in these 24-hour segments, how does verse 2 fit in to the rest of the creation story? It tells us in Genesis 1-2 that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So how do we go from there to verse 3? Well, the form and void talks about emptiness, literally speaking. God is giving us a quick glimpse of the creation process, of the progress it's taking over these 24-hour segments and how it's still unfinished at this point. You see, those who believe in the gap theory, they jump on verse 2 and they point to verse 1 to prove that the world had a previous beginning, that man was created, that man sinned, and everyone in that world was wicked, and Satan fell from heaven with his fallen angels, and God had to destroy the world. But he's recreating it in verse 2, according to the gap theorists. And so this is the second creation of the world. But that's not what the context is teaching us. You see, as we think about that, we know that all of the Trinity was involved in the creation of the world. And we know that, as we said, that verse 2 is a snapshot giving us a picture of what the process and the progress that was going on. God is speaking the world into existence. We see, first of all, God the Father is involved. He says in Isaiah 40, verse 22, It is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. God the Father, he spoke and it became true creation. Second of all, God the Holy Spirit. We read in verse 2 that he is hovering over the face of the waters. The God, it tells us in the Hebrew language that the, Holy, the word for Holy Spirit and wind could be synonymous. But the problem is that the wind doesn't hover. And so in this context, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to describe the, throughout this chapter of how the Holy Spirit began to do the things, was active in the process of putting this all together. We know from Colossians 3.16 and John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that the Holy Spirit helps hold everything together and make sure that the molecules and the atoms stay where they need to go in order to keep this orderly process going forward. So God the Father, God the Son, and then, or God the Holy Spirit. Now God the Son, in John chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And Jesus was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was there as well. He was working alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we read more about that in Proverbs chapter 8, where uh, the writer kind of uses Jesus as the one who is speaking here. He says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before God had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, and when he established the heavens, Jesus, I was there. And when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, Jesus was there at creation, highly involved. So it's amazing, our application says, to see how inventive the Trinity is in creating the universe. It's amazing to see how inventive the Trinity is in creating the universe. Let's look thirdly at the demonstration of God's creativity, the demonstration of his creativity. Notice the pattern of each day of creation as you progress through Genesis 1, 3 through 31. You see the creative word from God. You see the report of the effect of the word, that what actually happened because the word was sent forth and action was given. And then God's evaluation of his creation. It's aesthetically beautiful, and it's also great for humankind. Sometimes God gives a name to an object of his creation to show he's sovereign and that he has dominion over the world. Think about that. Abram left Earl of Chaldees, and later God changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. Isaac, before he was born, God told Abraham and Sarah to name him Isaac. Jacob, his name was changed to Israel to show God's sovereign control and rule over his life. The name John the Baptist was given to Jesus' cousin before he was born. And then, of course, Simon, his name was changed to Peter, the little rock. You see, God names these things to show dominion, and so he allowed, as we'll see later, Adam to name the animals and have dominion over the created world. We see also here the number of the day. Each one of the days, God says this is the first day, the second day, and so on. So let's dive in here as we talk about day one. Today we'll only look at a couple of these days for the sake of time. We'll look at the rest next week. But day one, the separation of light and darkness. The separation of light and darkness. Look at Genesis 1. And read with me verses 3 through 5 in your Bible. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. And that was the first day. It's very important to understand that the word in Hebrew for day is yom. Y-O-M. Context is everything, as I've mentioned several times in the Hebrew language, because some words have synonymous or similar meanings, and it's left up to the study of the context and how that word is used in other places 
in the Old Testament to determine its meaning in the text one is reading. Some interpret Yom as an extended geological ages of time prior to man on earth. These are people that hold to the old age of the earth theory. Others interpret it as literal 24-hour periods of time. And Yom, if you study the Old Testament, maintains the same meaning throughout, that it's a 24-hour period of time, whether you read about it in Jericho when they marched around the walls or other places. It's a 24-hour period. Reading in, in verse 11, it tells us, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the, the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Six literal days, 24-hour periods. In verses 3 through 5, God said that there was light. The sun was not yet made, or if it was, it was not made visible yet to uh, the creation because it was hidden away. There's always been light in the universe. There's been this thing of photon light, and that appears out in the outer reaches of space. But God is the light, and light may have radiated from his powerful glory. We see light means good throughout the Bible, and darkness is related to sin and evil. The light overcomes the darkness, and darkness is merely the absence of light. And we know in Revelation chapter 22, it says at the end of time when we are with God in heaven, there won't be a sun or a moon. It says in Revelation 22, 5, and the night will be no more. There will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God overcame the darkness as one of the plagues that Moses had to deal with in trying to get Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave the bondage and slavery of Egypt. And it's interesting, when he pronounced the plague, Moses did, that the Egyptians experienced darkness so rich that they couldn't see their hand in front of their face. But the Bible says in Exodus 10 that all of the Israelites, the Jews in their homes, had light. Light was used to lead the Israelites through the wilderness journey. Think of the pillar of fire that was there at night around the tabernacle and the cloud by day. And when God decided to move Israel on, he would move the pillar of fire of the cloud. It's significant to note that God saw that the light was good in verse 4. And notice when that, he uses that word saw. Saw means to provide, to see something to the end, to make sure it's accomplished. Light is a benefit to man. And that same word saw is used concerning Hagar and Ishmael and God making sure that he saw that they were provided for and taken care of. God created light and saw that it was good for the benefit of human beings. The second day, day two, the separation of the seas and the skies. In Genesis 1, 6-8, it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. A lot of use of the word expanse there. But mainly, what he's saying is that God separated the waters on earth from those to the sky above. He had a barrier between them. The expanse there 
of the heavens could mean just the lower atmosphere, or it could even be outer space, all to the far reaches of the universe. We're not sure. But there is a dense moisture on Earth to this point, and God is now about dividing and uh, showing distinction in his order of creation. There's the theory by John Wickham and others of that of a canopy, that God placed a canopy over the earth at this time, and it was very tropical. Even the Arctic circles were semi-tropical. And how do we know that? Because later on, archaeologists discovered mastodons and elephants who were chewing food and were frozen very quickly to death, and they were preserved. And what happened was, is the canopy that provided a tropical environment, very humid, misty, vegetation was very strong and green. But when we get to the flood and talk about Noah, it says that God opened up the windows of heaven and poured out water and brought water from the deep, from the ground. And so you can see that this canopy was opened up to bring about judgment when we get to talk about Noah and the flood. Well, God is saying to Israel here that he is the one, not the local sun or moon God who controls the weather patterns. This is part of his revealed character and the purpose for humankind. In day three, we see the separation of the seas and the land and the creation of fruitful vegetation. The separation of seas, the land, and the creation of fruitful vegetation. Look at Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Notice in day three that God forms the land and the vegetation. This is paralleled in the sixth day of creation as well. God is preparing an agricultural rich world for his special creation man so that he could live and have food to eat. He created plants. Man pretty much had a plant-based diet until later on in the book of Genesis. And uh, he provided fruit trees so they could eat fruit as well. But notice he created the world with maturity with age, so that the cycles would continue, like photosynthesis, like plants breathing out oxygen as we breathe out CO2, and it, the plants take in the CO2 and produce oxygen. All of these balances, like the weather, water evaporating to again come back to Earth, all these things had to come together, these ecosystems. So God created the world with age and maturity, and that's what fool some scientific people. But the plants yielded seed. You had to be mature to be able to give seeds. And fruit trees are created for man to eat. Later on, we see vegetation 
in chapter 1, verse 30, not just for man, but also for animals. And the last thing we'll look at today, or the last day, is day four. Day four, the separation of the created light by day and the created lights by night. Look at our last reading today, verses 14 through 19 of Genesis 1. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. While the sun, as we said, was, may have been created in the early days of creation, just a few days before, or maybe God just formed it at this point. But the point is it's now visible to man because God made it possible for them to see it. And the sun governs and rules the day. The moon and the stars, they rule the night, as it says. The stars reveal the handiwork and the beauty of God's creation. To look up at those constellations, to see the Big Dipper, and, and to see those planets sometimes that are visible in our skies, we see the amazing creativity of God. He talks about in these verses signs and seasons. And these would all be meaningless without the creation of the sun and the moon. When he refers to signs here, he's talking about miracles of God's revealing of his involvement in our history. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. And then they talk about seasons, days and years. Seasons were appropriate times by God for feasts and for holy days. Before man fell, God was setting up the signposts for redemption. These were ways, these feasts and these festivals and these holy days that he would later talk about that Israel needed to observe. They were to point to the redemption of the nation of Israel and for the Gentiles as well through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 104, verse 19, it says that God made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. It's interesting that some people today who are non-believers study astrology. They still look at the charts that the Babylonians made of the stars and the, the patterns of those things, and they began to use those to try to predict what the future would be. Others look to the sun god of ancient Egypt for answers. But the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And we must look beyond the creation to the creator who is so worthy of our praise. We must look to him. And so as we uh, think about that and think about the fact that he is worthy of all honor and praise, so many people in our world, they get more focused on the creation. They get more focused on worshiping the material things rather than looking to the one who created them all. A great example of this is uh, uh, I've got a, a baseball bat at home that was signed by a major league baseball player. And you know that bat is worth some money. 
But guess what? It wouldn't be worth anything if it wasn't for the person who signed it using it in an amazing way to hit home runs, to have a high average or whatever. But without the person using the bat, the bat really is meaningless. So when we look at creation and we look at all the things that God has created, we need to look beyond those things like the Grand Canyon or the beautiful glaciers of Alaska and think about the one who formed all those things. He is the one who's worthy of our praise. But too many times we're like it says in Romans 1.25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Please enjoy the nature that God has created and the handiwork in the skies, but know it is him that we exalt and we honor because of those things. It's a daily choice that God leaves us up to us as to who and how we will worship. So in closing, just a reminder that God said he made in verses 7 and 16. God is the one behind the beauty of his creation. Make sure that we exalt him today. Our final application is this. It's amazing to see how God thought of everything in creating the ultimate and infinite universe. It just blows me away to think of the perfect balance of how God keeps all these ecosystems running together so that we could inhabit this planet. Just think about it. If the sun was just a little further away or a little closer, we'd either freeze to death or we would burn up. The perfection of God and the precision of it all makes it amazing. So as we saw today and we'll continue to see next week, God is very precise in how he designed the world. And Colossians and Hebrews say that by his word and through the Holy Spirit, he holds all things together. He's not a deist God who began the world like a clockmaker and wound it up and left it to run its course. Our God is out there. He's transcendent, but he's imminent. He's here with us in history. So our key thought is this. May we be in awe as we worship the creator and enjoy his creation. May we be in awe as we worship the creator and enjoy his creation. Three questions to ponder this week as we closed. I hope today that you're awestruck. And that's my first question. Are you awestruck at the perfect balance God created in our world? Hope you spend some time and ponder that. Second of all, you appreciate of God's artistic variety of designs and landscapes and people. No two people are alike. There's not another place like the Grand Canyon. God is very amazing in how he designs things. And thirdly, do you wonder why God was so willing to reveal himself in such a personal way to his creation? So today I encourage you to think about that and to exalt and worship the one who began this creation process. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, pause in honor and amazement of how you took the time to think through every detail of not only our planet, but this universe, how you provide perfect order and balance, how everything was so precise that man was able to send men to the moon and to walk on it because it was based on your design and orderliness of the universe that we could count on. So Lord, today I pray that you would help us to focus and exalt you because you are the God of all gods. You're the King of kings.
and the Lord of Lords, and you're sovereign over all. And we praise you and thank you for your creation today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.